So Christmas is about five weeks away. Can you believe that? Yeah. Next week, we're, or, or I guess at the beginning of December, we're going to do an Advent series and start ramping up our expectations and our anticipation for Christmas. But Christmas is, uh, is a great time. And it, so in five weeks, I guess, some people are going to be facing these awkward moments where they open a gift and they see some clothing that is not the kind of clothing they would choose. And then they're gonna, that awkward moment is going to be is going to be amplified by uh, three very frightening words. Try it on! And then those three frightening words are going to be further amplified by three more frightening words, which are, it's totally you. <laughs> then those three frightening words are going to be amplified even more by three awkward words that the person on the receiving end uh, says nervously by by saying, yeah, it's great. Um, and then they're going to spend the next five minutes trying to, f- feels a little bit like they're trying to pass a polygraph test, lie detector. And every, every Christmas, you know, everybody has a story like that. Afterwards, if you said, you know, tell me an awkward Christmas gift story, probably we all have stories like that. Because we generally don't put things on that we don't have an affinity for. I mean, everybody in here is wearing clothing that they have an affinity for. You, you put things on that you have an affinity for. If you work at a fast food restaurant, you put the visor on because you have to. You don't have an affinity for it necessarily. And if you work in a fast food restaurant, I noticed nobody wore their visor this morning. So there's things that, you know, there's things you put on because you have to, but there, generally speaking, things we put on, we have an affinity for. This morning, our text is from Colossians chapter 3. And we've been working our way through Colossians. And in this text... Paul, uh, the Apostle, is encouraging the Colossians to put off certain things and put on certain things. But the point here, as we begin to unpack this text, is that the things that the Apostle Paul is instructing the church and us, by extension, to put on are things that we should have an affinity for. Things that we're going to see, by God's great grace, we'll actually develop an affinity for. And so we're diving into the middle of the letter And this passage I'm about to read you from Colossians 3, I'm going to read the first 17 verses. It starts with the word if. So I just want to give us some context here because we're we're diving into the middle of Paul's thoughts. The first two chapters remind us that we are God's children uh, by his rescuing grace. And now the letter shifts in chapter 3 to say, hey, we're being called to bear the family resemblance uh, by the continuing work of God's reforming grace. And so we're going to uh, read these first 17 verses from Colossians 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to each other, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of after the image of its creator." 
Here there is, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which uh, with thanksgiving in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's word. Now, if the letter started here in that passage I just read, which is a long list of things that we're supposed to walk in and do, if the letter began there, then it would be reasonable to assume that the Christian faith is all about what you're doing. But the letter doesn't start there. The letter takes us there. And what we learn by this is that we learn in chapters 1 and 2 that we were created by Christ, through Christ, and for Christ, which means the Christian faith is not primarily about what we're doing. The Christian faith is primarily a journey into the new you that you are becoming. And of course, becoming does involve doing, but I'm being very careful to remind us that Paul's letter takes us here. In other words, he's got a basis and a reason that's very gracious. There's a tidal wave of God's goodness and grace coming that's actually propelling this instruction. And we need that to remember that to understand the text because this passage is actually giving us a framework for ethics, right? Put off these things. Put on these things. Don't think about these things in this way. Think about things in this way. You've got the Christian ethics here. You've got this philosophical framework. The reason why this is important is because you remember from last week, and I'm going to remind you, before Paul gets to this ethic, hey, put these things on, he says, I don't want you to get taken captive by cultural, worldly philosophy according to human wisdom. Philosophy in the Greek comes from two words, phileosophia. Phileosophia, phileo means to love, and sophia means wisdom. So Paul is not against the love of wisdom. He's against the love of wisdom that's according to limited human understanding and the cultural conversation. So Paul is saying, do your philosophy according to Christ. Well, how do you even do that? What does that even mean? So again, Paul's not saying, oh, you've got some philosophical ideas about, you know, truth and justice and mercy and identity and your sexual ethics and your business ethics and your, your, your family ethics and the way you think about marriage or the way you think about children or running your business or friendship or forgiveness. You've already got ideas about that. Hey, you know, think about Jesus. Paul isn't just using flowery language. Hey, think about Jesus. When he says, do your phileo sophia, do your pursuit of and love of wisdom according to Christ, he's, he's pinning it, like I said last week, in a historical truth claim. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life you and I could never live. And he did everything that God required for God to be pleased for us. And then he died an atoning death on the cross, which means he took all the wrath and all the judgment of God for you and I. Jesus took it. 
And at the cross, there was the great exchange where everything that we deserved, Christ took, and everything that Christ deserves, we will get. And we are justified and declared righteous because of what Christ did. And then three days later, that tomb was empty. That all of history agrees. Roman antiquity agrees. The Christian Bible agrees. The Babylonian Talmud agrees. Everybody agrees the tomb was empty. What Paul is saying is, the reason the tomb was empty is Jesus is who he said he was. And if Jesus Christ is who he said he was, then his claim was that he was God. And if the claim of Jesus Christ was that he was God, then our ethics and our philosophical framework for how we kind of approach life can't be framed by the culture. It can't be framed by the transient wisdom. It's got to be framed by the creator of the universe. It only makes sense. In Paul's mind, he's saying the philosophia, the philosophy, the logic that makes sense is that I now align and recalibrate my heart and my mind according to the one who by great grace has saved me, died for me, paid the penalty for all my sin and rose again on the third day, authenticating that his claims were true. And that as C.S. Lewis said, for those of you who don't know, C.S. Lewis was an atheist philosopher and C.S. Lewis was uh, in his atheism and and in his philosophical pursuit of sort of disproving God, he came to believe the historical credible accounts of the resurrection and C.S. Lewis turned from his atheism and he came to faith. And now he's one of, historically, one of the great apologists of the Christian faith. And C.S. Lewis said, Jesus was either the Lord or he was a lunatic or a liar. Those are our options. So when we get to this text where Paul says, put off these things, put on these things, he's not just arbitrarily giving the church a laundry list of things to do. He's saying, I'm appealing that your heart and your mind and eventually what comes out of your hands is recalibrated by the truth of who Jesus Christ actually is. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. We were made God's children through one act of his rescuing grace. And we are called to bear the family resemblance through the ongoing work of his reforming grace. And so this text that we just read in in, uh, Colossians 3 is not simply a prescription for what you and I are supposed to do. It is that, but it's far more than that. It is actually a description of who you and I actually are. Paul is not asking you to put something on that you have no affinity for. If you are saved by scandalous grace, then more and more over the course of your life, this list of things to put off and things to put on are things that your heart will actually begin to have an affinity for. I'm going to to show this to you because Paul uses very intentional language. It's not just a to-do list. Hey, welcome to church, Colossians 3, do these things. We missed the point. Watch, I'll show you. In verses 1 through 4, Paul says, seek the things that are above where Christ is. But where are you? You're where Christ is. That's what he says. He doesn't, he doesn't say, seek things above where Christ is. I mean, you're way down here. A miserable wretch with no affinity for what I'm about to tell you to do. I mean, you're not, not going to want to do this because you're just a flaming sinner. That's not the tone of this text at all. We are sinners. All of us sin. All of us fail. Not, not a person in this room, starting with this preacher. We've all sinned. We all sin every week. I don't stand up here and fake confession while you guys confess. I'm confessing. If it bothers you that you have a pastor that has to confess a sin every week, you should find another church. 
where the pastor is sinless and he never has to confess a sin. But I'm for real confessing. And Paul says, think of, set your mind on things above where Christ is. But where are you? You're where Christ is. Look at the language that he uses in the first four verses. He says, you're raised with him and you are hidden in him. So Paul is actually making a, a pretty significant appeal here. He's actually talking to the trajectory of rescuing grace. That scandalous grace that rescued us has a reforming trajectory that's doing a work in us. And now he's saying, seek the things that are above that is actually who you are. It's actually in Christ Jesus, the new you. Now, you and I look at this and we say, this doesn't even describe me. I don't look anything like this. I don't, I don't seem to have an affinity for these things. I'm struggling in my sin. I'm flailing in my sin. I'm failing in my sin. Paul, this sounds great, but if you knew what I did this week or knew what I thought last night or what I did last night, you wouldn't be saying this. Stay with me. I'm going to walk you through this text to see that how, how this is actually very, very um, good news. Not because, we, not because this text is the actual gospel, but because this text is actually calling us to something because of the actual gospel. So let's keep going and you'll see it. So, we, so the, the tone here is not be good and work your way up to where Christ is. The tone of the text is you're where Christ is because of grace. I'm appealing to something that the Spirit has done and is doing in you. That's the, that's, that's the tone of this. The, re, the basis for being called to set our minds on things that are higher is because by grace alone we are united to the one who is higher. And so when Paul uses that language, being ra- you were raised and were hidden in Christ, that's what the gospel is for you. And so then when he says, set your mind on things above and put these things off and put these things on, that's what the gospel does in you. If it was just a laundry list of things to do, this would be a very depressing morning. Because whatever you were up to last week, it's just not going to be enough, right? If this was a laundry list, hey, how are you guys doing? How's your... How's your love walk doing? How are you doing in your marriage with your children at work, with your prayer life, with your... And I'm not saying that I'm not... Please hear me. I'm not minimizing Christian discipline. What I'm trying to do here this morning is get underneath the Christian discipline to show you that it's the affinity for Jesus Christ because of his great grace that actually is what propels all Christian discipline. And we've jumped in mid-letter, so I can't emphasize it enough because otherwise our natural kind of proclivity is going to just look at this like a to-do list, which it absolutely is not. It's a, it's a to-be list on the basis of what Christ has done in us. If you look at verse 4, Paul says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you'll appear with him in glory. And when he says in glory, in glory means glorification. In other words, there's, this long, there's a long chain link of things that God does in grace. Salvation is by grace. Justification is by grace. Uh, a sal- uh, Sanctification is by grace. Our preservation uh, in the gospel is by grace. And then right at the end, at the very end, after death, is resurrection and glorification by grace. So look at what the way Paul talks about you and I is it's past tense. When Christ appears, he uses the words, you will appear with him in glory. You will. He's enough. It gives us two very important things here. Think about it this way. Last week was uh, Remembrance, Rem- Remembrance Day, last week. Right? And in 1944, the Allied troops took the beach in Normandy. And when the Allied troops took the beach in Normandy, the war was definitively over. 1944. 
But in 19, but there were skirmishes and battles, and people died between 1944 and 1945. When in 1945 we call that V-Day, right? They stormed the beach. That's D-Day. War's over. But then there's all these battles and skirmishes, and then V-Day comes when it's definitively the, it's, the skirmishes are done. The Christian life is a little bit like that. We live in between the already of D-Day, the cross, and V-Day. The struggle is done. So Paul talks about V-Day as Victory Day as glorification. Glory. You will, church, you will. Not you might, you will. If your faith is in Christ alone, apart from your works, you will. It's done. So from that premise, Paul says, now, you've got to put some things off, and you've got to put some things on. That's not contrary to grace. That's the trajectory of grace. That's precisely what it does in all of us. It gives us an affinity for this list, for what he's up to. Which is why, through verses 5 through 8, Paul uses incredibly strong language. He says, in verse 5 through 8, he says, Put to death your sin. Okay. He doesn't say, sit back and relax. Christ will put your sin to death. That's not what the text says. Well, maybe in the Greek it means Jesus does it. No, it doesn't. I checked. You do it. But what about grace? Precisely. This is precisely because of grace. This is precisely the trajectory that it begins in our heart. It's ongoing. It's through our life. We fall, we fall over ourselves. Some sins we put to death very quickly. And we look back and say, boy, I haven't struggled with that in decades. Other sins, it's like the thorn in the side. The, the thing that's a constant struggle. Some sin we're going to struggle with to the day we die. But, the, but, the, but the, the orientation of the one who saved in grace is, I want to put this stuff to death. That's really what we want. It's the affinity of, I'll put this on and I'll put that off. It's like Christmas morning. You open up the thing and there's Aunt Ruth saying, oh, it's totally you. And you're looking down going, that is not me. That's the attitude we begin to have about our sin. The old you would look at it and say, oh, that's totally me. I'll just put it on. I'll wear it all the time. This is fantastic. But Paul is appealing to the new you in Christ. So that over the course of our life, we look at the sin in the box and we go, yeah, I don't think I want to put that on. Sadly, sometimes we do put it on. And we catch ourselves, our reflection, we catch our, our reflection in life as we're walking through life. And what the heck am I wearing? You put the sin back on. Because we're sinners. But we are sinners saved by grace. And so when we see that we've put it back on, there's therefore now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. That's Romans. So what do we do? We take it back, we put it off, we put it to death. There's no condemnation in that, but the orientation of our heart is, I don't want to wear that. It's not me. That's what Paul's appealing to here. That's, this is not what the gospel is for you. This is precisely what the gospel does in you. And so that's, that's uh, Paul's basis for all of this, this recalibration of our, of our ethics. That's why, he uses the, that's why language is so important and words are so important. That's why the apostle says, at one time you once walked and at one time you once lived. He's saying, you used to walk in this and live in it. You know, how many of you have kids and they have like a favorite shirt, favorite pair of sweatpants, favorite sweater, and they live in it. They wake up in it, they go to bed in it, they live in it, they're always wearing it. They wear it until they wear it out, right? We've all, ha- we've all done that, haven't we? This is my favorite shirt. You, wear it, you, you, you can see through it. It's transparent. It's like you're wearing a fishnet. 
Because you walked in it and you lived in it. And Paul is saying, yes, of course there's a struggle with sin. Of course all of us fall and falter and fail. But we don't live in it. We don't wake up and say, I want to put this on and live in it all day. That's ridiculous. It's not what grace does. We don't live with this sort of indifference. And that's what Paul's appealing to. That's, that's precisely what he's appealing to here. Um, we look at this, uh, this laundry list of things that we're supposed to put to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, evil desire, covetous, anger, malice, slander, obscene talking. He doesn't rank that. We do, right? Well, obviously the worst one is sexual immorality. And, you know, I mean, I've got an, you know, I deal with constant anger. But, you know, that's, I mean, hey, I'm just, it's a little struggle. No, we, we like to rank it. God's not ranking it. The, the apostle's point here is to just broad brush our sin problem. So you'll notice in that laundry list of things he says to put to death, it's things that have to do with our thoughts, things that have to do with the motive and attitudes of our heart. Actually, half of that list is, is inside you. It's not even an external thing. And then you've got other things that are outside of us. So the, his point is Christ and his grace begin a lifelong process of recalibration. So we don't look to the culture and go, well, how does the culture think about what I'm up to? Well, the culture seems to celebrate it, so therefore I should. Right? I mean, the conversation of our, of our generation is, is uh, sexual ethics, but let, 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 me, let me talk about a different one. You know, if we are workaholics, North America essentially s- celebrates that. Right? If you lose your marriage because you're building a business, most people are kind of like, well, hey, I mean, it comes with the territory. And our culture will celebrate it. If I, as a pastor, forsake my marriage and forsake my children and run, and run ragged and my kids never see me because all I do is run around and, and uh, do benevolent stuff or meet with, you know, I'm having coffee and meetings with you guys and I'm at your house and I forsake my family, most people in North American ministry world go, hey, man, I mean, you're just like, that's all part of ministry is just making sacrifices for the gospel. So we can actually baptize being a workaholic. Be like, it's okay. I mean, the culture celebrates it, so I can justify it, right? Sexual ethics, same thing. Well, how does the culture say about that? What does God's word tell me? So what is the filter exactly? So what Paul is saying, and he's saying it really unapologetically, is he's saying the new you saved in Christ, he actually recalibrates how I think about all of these ethics. Why? On what basis? On the basis that if Christ rose from the grave and he's who God and he's who he said he was, then I have to recalibrate my life to him and his truth. The God of the universe doesn't recalibrate his ethics to my ideas, right? And this is offensive, talking this way, right? If I tell you, get your sexual ethic from the scriptures or get your ethics for work or marriage or how you approach your children or uh, all the other things that are in this list in terms of your covetousness, Right? Get your ethic from Scripture. Be happy with what you have, right? Don't live in. Co- don't keep looking at your what your neighbor has and and develop a philosophy of life which is bigger, better, faster, stronger. Don't do that. That's offensive. You'll say, preacher, don't tell me how to think. Don't tell me what. To, don't tell me that. But you want to know something? The Bible didn't become offensive in the last five minutes. The Bible was offensive the moment it was penned by all those authors. Why? It's not offensive to us because we're modern. It's offensive to us because we're human. Because, it, because what it does is it makes us bend our knee and go, wait a minute, there is a God, actually. I'm not him. There is one who transcends reality, who gives me a philosophical framework, a phileo sophia, a love of wisdom, 
where he actually begins to now tell me that I have to recalibrate my ethics to him. And that's offensive because you've got the transcendent God of the universe and then you've got us. We're a little bit like little kids at the table and you're trying to put, give them food that's healthy for them, but they don't want to eat it. And they scrunch their face up and they're like, mm, 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 I don't like it. And that's kind of our attitude towards God's word when we forget grace. See, the whole point of God's grace is that this is not a laundry list of things you don't want to do. The whole point of the first two chapters of, of Colossians is that when you get to Colossians 3, where he starts telling us to put things on, it's that our hearts actually have an affinity for this. This is actually what we want. That we're not like the... Now, when we're, when we're, when we're first confronted with our sin, we go, I don't like it. All of us do that. I don't like it. Give me another interpretation. Maybe it doesn't mean that in the Greek. It does. I checked. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not being pretentious. I'm just telling you that the Bible has always offended that part of our humanity. That's, I'll put it to you this way. If the God that you're serving doesn't ask you to change, doesn't ask you to recalibrate, doesn't ever argue with you, doesn't disagree with you, agrees with all of your viewpoints on absolutely everything, doesn't ask you to bend your knee, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. You're worshiping a God of your own construct. That, I mean, that's not even a God. What was that? Oh. It was a sign, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but the mic drop, yeah. The angels are like, amen, that's right. God of the I mean, because in that scenario, we're God then. In that scenario, he bend, he's bending to us. So Paul says, hey, no, no, no. We've got to put these things to death. But the good news, of course, is that we want to. We will want to. We will increasingly want to. And it's, of course, it, of course, takes our takes our whole life to do this. And so some of you say, well, gosh, what about grace? Putting, putting our sin to death, that, that sounds like a lot of work. What about grace? Well, this is precisely what rescuing grace does, is it reforms, it renews. It's an ongoing process of us actually desiring this renewal. And so when Paul, Paul goes on in verses uh, 9 to 10 to say uh, that we put on the new self, right? And so we've been uh, justified by grace and through faith, apart from our works, we're, we're, we're putting on something new. What does this actually mean? Well, it's actually very good news because he says we're being remade into the image of our creator. That's in verse 10. So this list of things that Paul's calling us to is, is, is actually a little bit like how little kids put on their parents' shoes or they put on a parent's hat and, and we think it's really cute and we take pictures of them. Right? It never gets old. Right? All of you parents who are in here and you have little babies and this hasn't happened yet, you're all going to do it. And all of us who've had kids know you're going to do it because we all did it. The moment you walk into the room and you see that your child is standing there and put your shoes on, you're going to take a picture. You're going to put on Instagram. That's what you're going to do. You're going to Instagram your baby. Look, look, this is so cute. It never gets old, ever. It never gets old. Every parent does it. If a little child puts on your hat, you're going to take a picture because there is something that resonates in the heart of a parent when there is imitation in the behavior of the child. And so this texture Paul's saying put on, it's this call to imitation. Again, an imitation that we actually want. Even if we struggle with it, even though we say this list of things I'm supposed to put on is nothing like me. You've got this list. Compassion. Hearts of kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiveness, and above all, put on love. There are times in our lives where that does not describe us. 
There are times in our lives where all of us are the exact opposite of those things. But the good news of this text is being fueled by, by the gospel, which means God's grace and God's reform is not from the outside in. It's from the inside out. The good news for you today, church, is everything that I am preaching from this text about being compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient, bearing with one another, forgiving, being loving, that's a description of you by the grace of God. That is who you are becoming more and more by the grace of God. That's the, that is the person you want to be by the grace of God. And all of us will look in the mirror one day and say, I kind of am on the opposite of these things, and it's true. But the good news is we get to confess our sin and sign back up again. You're all going to have an ethic that's going to ram up against the truth of God's word. It might, be an, it might be an ethic as it relates to your vocation. It might be an ethic that relates to your uh, recreation, things that you, know, you uh, give your life to, that you're, that's going to be challenged. It might be an ethic as it relates to how you relate to your spouse or your kids. It might be the way that you're manipulating a friendship. It might be the way that you are uh, oppressing, being oppressive in a relationship. It might be your sexual ethic. Something's going to hit the truth of God's word. And God's word is going to say, I want you to bend your knee. But here's the good news. The good news is not God not standing there with a whip, cracking it over your head, saying, get in line. His arms are wide open saying, my child, this is who, by grace, you actually are. Confess and repent and allow my spirit to renew you. It's, it is from the inside out. Be, Christian faith is not like being handed a new menu. Here you go. Now, please order off of this for the rest of your life. That would be horrifying. Because you wouldn't even want half the things on the menu. It's not like being given a new menu. It's like being given new taste buds. Over the course of your life, your, what you want changes. This is Colossians 3. That's why Paul says, put this off, put this on. This is what grace is doing. You're not self-propelling this. It's like Susan and Rebecca both enjoy sushi. And I don't eat sushi. And I'm never going to eat sushi. And if we go to a place where there's sushi on the menu, 100% of the time, I'm never going to order the sushi. Because I have no desire for it. I have no affinity for it. And that's what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying the good news of this list is it's not simply a prescription for you. It's actually a description of you because by the same grace that saved you, the Spirit is renewing you. You're going to desire something new. There's no version of me ever ordering the sushi because I have no affinity for that. But I do have an affinity for the things that are on this list, even though I fail. You know, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, be, I'll tell you, anger is on this list. And I have a real problem with anger. I hate it. It's embarrassing, but I constantly, if I feel threatened or insecure, which is a lot, the first thing that I do is I want to defend myself, and it comes out in a defense. It's it's anger. Right away, you know, that's on that list. All of us fail according to the things that are on this list, but you want to know something? Being an angry person, that's not who I am. I can't say to Susan and my children, hey, I'm sorry, I'm, just, I'm an angry person. I've got mommy issues, I've got daddy issues, and I just got a lot of issues, and I'm just an angry person. Dealt with a lot of things in my life, and I'm just going to be angry until Jesus comes back. You know what? The, I might struggle with anger for the rest of my life until Christ returns. But you want to know what? That's not me. 
I'm just going to lay, I'm not going to lay over and roll over and die on that. I don't look down at the sin of my anger like opening a box on Christmas morning and go, yeah, I think I'll put that on. I'm like, no, that, I don't want to put that on. But the truth of the fact is, every Sunday since Redeemer started, I've been up here confessing my sin, and one of those things is anger. And you want to know something? I am not going to just sit back and put it on. I hate it. Yes, I fail at it. But you know what? By God's grace, I would like to put it on less and less until Christ returns. And you have your own story of whatever it is, your sin is, that you would desire that by the Spirit and grace of God, you would put on less and less until Christ returns. And I'm going to close with this. Paul uses these glorious words. He says, put on the new self. In other words, you're not doing these things in order to become. By Christ's grace, you already are. Now do these things because this is actually the new you. This is actually who you are. Don't do in order to be. Be because this is done. Aristotelian logic is, if you want to be this kind of a person, do these things, and then you become that kind of a person. Paul's gospel logic is not that. Christ has done it all. There is nothing left for you to do in order for you to be righteous before God and considered by God holy and blameless. So the reason Paul uses the words, the new you, is because everything on this list of sin that God would never use to describe his son, he does not use to describe you. In the same way that none of those sins describe Jesus, they do not describe you. That is not how God sees you. He sees you as holy and blameless and righteous because of the grace of Christ. So Paul says, because that is a reality, because that is true, and because that is done, live according to who you are now. And yes, you're going to fail, but your salvation is not hinging in the balance of your ability to walk out this ethic. And I'm going to close with this. Did I already say that? This is closing the sequel. Okay, this is it. Years ago, I had to have uh, surgery on my knee because I had a football injury. And um, they knocked me out, and I was unconscious. And they, they went in, and they took a piece of my hamstring out. And they rebuilt my knee with a piece of my hamstring. I don't know how they did that, but it's pretty amazing. And when I woke up, the doctor gave me some instructions called rehab. Do you want to know how much I had to do with what happened to me internally? Zero. That's like the grace of God coming in and doing surgery on your heart by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It does all the work. The surgeon did all the work. Do you want to know what my contribution was? Sleeping. You know what your contribution was to your salvation? Sinning. That was your contribution. Shocking, I know, but you were very good at it. And Christ in his grace saved you and I. And after we have been raised by Christ and we are hidden in Christ, the great physician says, I have some rehab for you. I've actually done something inside you you could never do for yourself. And I've done it by grace. And now I'm calling you, Paul, to, you know, go to the gym and do these things. I'm I'm calling you to walk in a certain way. You know, I had to learn to walk again. The doctor said to me, 
heel then toe. You have to make sure that you do this. Make sure that you bend and extend in such a way. I was being taught to walk again. But you know, my learning to walk again did absolutely zero for what was already done inside me. What was done inside me was a gracious gift by the physician. But everything that I was called to do in walking in a new way was for my benefit. To enjoy the implications of what the surgeon did. Colossians 3 is a call, church, for you and I to walk in a certain way. It is our spiritual, ethical, philosophical, recalibrating rehab through which we actually enjoy and flourish in our relationships and our marriages and and everything to enjoy the implications of what the great physician has already done, the surgery that he has done inside us by grace and through faith in Christ alone. We've been brought into God's family and made as children by a one-time act of God's grace, and now we're called to bear the family resemblance through the ongoing work of God's grace. Let's pray.